You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is going to be a bit of an interesting episode, and the reason for that is that it's a story that I've known about for a while, was talked about on Labor Relations Radio back in the fall, but didn't hit the press until this week. So here's a bit of the backstory. Last fall, the Americans for Fair Treatment Executive Director, Elizabeth Messenger, came onto the podcast, and we talked about a number of topics or issues. However, towards the end of the podcast, Elizabeth mentioned a case or a lawsuit that the AFFT had filed over the United States Post Office potentially giving unions customer information. Now, Elizabeth couldn't get into a lot of the details because the suit was still fairly new and still getting worked through the process or system, and it still is. But we sort of let the topic drop because it was just too soon. However, after our conversation, I had to check it, out, check it out for myself, and I went to the U.S. Post Office's website, and I went to order some stamps. And sure enough, in the fine print of the checkout page, in the privacy statement at the bottom, there's a little line that indicates that the post office may give customer information to labor unions as applicable by law. Now, the problem with that is that no one can seem to identify what law entitles unions to get customer information from the U.S. Post Office. It's not in the National Labor Relations Act. It's not in the uh, Railway Labor Act. It's not even in the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. So what law entitles unions to get customer information from the post office? Now, As I said, following the episode of Labor Relations Radio in the fall, we've kind of been sitting on the story waiting for for Elizabeth or somebody to give us an update. So fast forward a few months. Earlier this week, the Daily Mail, which is a British publication, as well as the Gateway Pundit, which is a blog website, posted articles on the AFFT's lawsuit. It hasn't been picked up by Bloomberg. It hasn't been picked up by Fox or any of the mainstream outlets, but... It's out there. And as always, I'll include the links under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Now, the Daily Mail's headline is entitled, and it's a long one, quote, U.S. Postal Service is accused of sharing private information from 68 million households that applied for free COVID-19 tests with labor unions that could potentially be used for their political campaigns, end quote. However, it's more than that. If you're a post office customer, if you simply buy stamps from the post office on its website, the same language is there, which means it's much, much more than the 68 million households that applied for free COVID tests. So now that the cat's out of the bag, so to speak, I asked the attorney handling the case to come onto the program and discuss it in a bit more detail than Elizabeth and I were able to last fall. Joining me today is David Dory, Senior Litigation Counsel for the Fairness Center, which is the law firm representing the Americans for Fair Treatment. 
Dave represents clients in state and federal courts and before administrative boards. And prior to joining the Fairness Center, Dave practiced law and held senior executive positions in the federal government, including at the U.S. Department of Labor, as well as the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Prior to his government service, Dave was a litigation associate at a large international law firm in, in Washington, where he represents, uh, represented clients in federal district and appellate courts, state trial and appellate courts, and before federal agencies. So here's Dave Dory. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So David Dory, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. You are from the Fairness Center, and it occurred to me earlier this morning that I had uh, Nathan McGrath on last year talking about one of the cases, but for the listeners, could you go through what the Fairness Center is in your background? Good morning, Peter. Thanks very much for having me in, absolutely. The Fairness Center is a nonprofit 501c3 public interest law firm. We represent... um, individuals and others uh, that have problems that arise in the context of a public sector unionized workspace, especially those that have been hurt by public sector union officials. The firm has been around for nine years, and we've represented more than 150 clients in that time. The first eight of those years, we focused solely on representing state and local officials in three states, Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut. I joined the firm last year out of the federal government and brought my experience to bear in, in as part of that, uh, we decided we were going to start representing federal employees who were experiencing many of the same issues. So in that time, the firm has become nationwide. Um, I'd like to talk about a couple of our cases today that uh, are in that space. And I'll note that in the time that I've been with the firm over the last year or so, we've taken on more than a dozen federal employees, and we've filed 35 matters on their behalf. Yeah, the the um, one case I know that we're going to get into, which is part of the reason we uh, set this up, is I had Elizabeth Messenger on. Um, I think one, I want to say it's back in November or October, and she mentioned something almost as we we're finishing up, and that is this case involving the postal service giving potentially giving um, postal customers information to unions. Yes, it's indeed one of the most interesting situations that I have ever seen in this space and certainly should be concerning to your listeners and perhaps to just about everyone across the country. Our client, Americans for Fear Treatment, is a nonprofit, and it was um, looking around related to the Biden administration's offering of free COVID test kits to the American public that started early last year in 2022. And an eagle-eyed person there spotted a a little tiny uh, Privacy Act statement at the bottom of the web form um, after you had put in your personal information that said, here is what the United States Postal Service, I'll call it the post office, is going to do with your personal information that you submit through this web form without your consent. And they noticed that this statement said the post office would give Americans personal information to labor unions which raised some red flags. For one, the post office's Ordinary Privacy Act notice doesn't mention anything about labor unions. And that's what they have up on their website for dealing with um, disclosure of information generally when you interact with the website. So our client was very, very interested and concerned that the post office had decided to depart from what it had done before for the purpose of this COVID test without explanation 
no press release, no nothing. And the post office wouldn't say. Uh, they're, they're not giving any information about this. It's just there. And I, I would suspect that most of the more than 70 million American households, half of American households that have asked for and gotten these COVID tests of this form didn't read this disclosure. And so they didn't know what was going on when they asked for this, these tests. And now their information is with the post office. And who knows what the post office has done with it. So, David, let me um, let me just mention for the listeners the your case is specific to the post office giving labor union labor unions people's information as they order covid tests after i spoke with elizabeth back in november i went to the post office website and just to order stamps and as recently as this past weekend when i did it again just to see it's still up there where if you order a stamp on, you know, whatever 52 cent stamp or whatever it costs these days. If you go to order stamps, it's still up there where it says they will, they can give your information to labor unions. And it says under applicable law too. That's exactly right, Peter. It's very, very interesting. And our client at AFFT is quite concerned about this. It appears to our client that the post office demoed the labor union disclosure with the COVID test and since that time has decided to roll it out across the board, although they have not amended, as far as I know, the, the ordinary Privacy Act notice. It's just they're embedded when you go ahead and do business with them. Mm-hmm. So not only when you go online to buy stamps and you're checking out, there it is, disclosure to labor unions at the bottom. It's also uh, in post offices physically. So if you'd like to buy stamps in person, your credit card data, your other personal information, labor unions. And now we have discovered even further that it's not just that. If you go on the the web form to change your address with the Postal Service, it's there now too. And these are things that you cannot escape. Americans could choose not to order COVID-19 tests from the post office if they wanted to. You can't choose not to get stamps unless you don't want to use the mail to send things. The post office has a monopoly. And you certainly cannot avoid anything with respect to changing your address because you you must do that in order to receive mail that other people send you, including things that are legal and that you must obtain. So at this point, it appears that there is no escape from the post office's disclosure to labor union officials of your personal information. So it says under applicable law, but and I've been stumped to try to figure out what applicable law would allow the government to give unions the information. I mean, there's nothing other than unless you're being unionized, there's no requirements that are under the National Labor Relations Act or the board. We are certainly unaware of any law that would authorize this disclosure, uh, let alone require it. Um, We have looked for that and come up short. I'll also note that the web form for changing your address doesn't contain that as required by applicable law information. It just says labor unions straight up. So it seems to be that's where the post office is going with this. Oh, interesting. Um, I just I did it online the other day. I've you know what? I've got to go check out and buy some stamps at the post office and see what it says. There. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you're fine with your personal information being given out. Well, it's probably already out there, but I guess the um, so it could be applied for politics. Could be. I'm not saying it is, but. Um, 
that would be the only thing I could think of is just for giving unions mailing addresses for politics. Right. Have have you gotten any response from the post office? Um, yes, to a degree. And we can explain um, related to AFFT's initial FOIA request and the litigation that came out, how this has gone and what the post office has told us about what's up. So way back in early 2022, our client AFFT decided to submit a Freedom of Information Act request to the post office. They're subject to FOIA, even though they're sort of quasi-private, um, quasi-public, and asked for information about this new Privacy Act statement that's at the bottom of the COVID-19 test web form, and also asked for information about what post office had done with Americans' personal information that was collected through this web form. The response from the post office was, we have no records. And that is absurd because we know there are records since they put this Privacy Act statement on their website. So there, there has to be a record. They did something with it. And we know that they departed from the ordinary Privacy Act notice that's up on the website to add labor unions in. So obviously this response was wrong. Our client, through my law firm, the Fairness Center, submitted an administrative appeal to the post office about this decision, pursuant to the post office's regulations about how this works, and got a response from a line lawyer in the general counsel's office saying, as a matter of fact, there are some records. But actually, it's just five emails, and here they are, and we have redacted every single bit of substantive information from these emails so that they disclose nothing about what's going on here. This is interesting because I don't understand how the post office could stand up an entire program, a new program to give away COVID test kits that didn't exist before, and have only five emails about this, this very important disclosure at the bottom. And also, the information that was redacted, all of that was done pursuant to exemptions that just don't apply to FOIA. Further, the fact that this line lawyer made this decision on appeal violated FOIA on its face, including the regulations that allowed for this person to make this decision. FOIA says that FOIA administrative appeals are to be adjudicated by the head of the agency. This is important because the head of the agency is politically accountable and a line person within any given agency is not. Um, I'll stop there and see if you have any follow-up on that before we get to the Yeah, so let me, when you say basically the head of the agency, are we talking about the postmaster general? We are. Okay. So let me back up a, a second further on these five emails. Did it indicate who was on there at all or no? The post office did not redact who was involved. So we could see, for example, that um, the, the, the privacy office was involved in crafting the statement. There were also other individuals kind of scattered throughout post office that were involved. And it was very interesting because the response said, you know, we, we searched the emails of three individuals to find out what was up and we found these records. The emails have six individuals on them. So we know on the face of the response that the post office did not conduct an adequate search because at at the very least, they only searched the records of one half of the people that were involved. Were any of, were they all uh, USPS employees, post office employees, or were they, did you have AFG or AFL-CIO or any other unions on there? 
they were just post office employees, although very, very recently the government has disclosed to us in response to a second FOIA request that our clients submitted to the post office that, in fact, there are relevant records that originated outside of the post office. They have not told us where those records came from yet, but we're going to find out. Oh, so we're still in like the almost early stages, even though it's been like a year, right? It is early stages, and that's very interesting. We can set up the, the lawsuit and how that's gone. Um, perhaps that makes some sense. In response to uh, this administrative appeal response, uh, our client AFFT asked us to file a lawsuit because the response was entirely inadequate. We filed a lawsuit in federal district court here in Washington, D.C., and uh, this lawsuit alleges that the post office did not comply with its FOIA obligations in its response, including by not conducting an adequate search and redacting information that's not redactable under FOIA from the documents it did produce, and that it acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner in deciding this. We also allege that the fact that the administrative appeal was decided by a line lawyer and that the regulations of post office permit this uh, was, was in fact in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act and FOIA. Because FOIA says that the head of the agency needs to make these choices. We filed that lawsuit back in April. It is pending as of today. It took us and the government from April to December to brief the issues up. Uh, and it, at times, there was clear dragging of feet to get to where we needed to be. But the good thing is now it's with the judge for decision. Do you have any timeline on that? There is no um, required timeline on that. We have asked the court in our, our complaint to, to decide this on an expedited basis. We hope that the court would make a decision in the next month or two. Is... Um... So, and this is ongoing. I, I kind of want to repeat this because, you know, although it was discovered with the COVID kits, it is literally you go to the post office today and I still need to go maybe this afternoon to go buy the stamps, but I know it's on the website. So if you go to, you know, check out and buy stamps online or likely I haven't tried this yet, but, you know, renew your post office box, they've got the ability to give your personal information, which is your address credit card, I assume, you know, all that stuff to labor units. Indeed. And it, it really raises for our client AFFT a lot of questions because if post office didn't intend to use this information to give to, to third non-governmental parties, I'll point out, then why did they include the information? Why did they include that within the disclosure, within the Privacy Act statement saying, here's what we can do with it. Everything else in that Privacy Act statement makes sense. Things like we can disclose to members of Congress on your behalf if we need to your personal information. We can disclose to law enforcement if needed. These are governmental entities saying that we're going to disclose the, the private personal information of more than 70 million American households to include names, addresses, and email addresses. And then further, if you're going into the change of address form, all manner of additional information, including where you live before and where you live now, it appears to our client that this is a way to obtain the very freshest data about how to contact Americans. And the question is, why would post office do this? Yeah, well, you mentioned the 70 million, and those are the ones who ordered, or 69 million, whatever it was, the, the ones that ordered the COVID kits. But you're really talking about 
the entire United States. You know, everybody. At this point, that that's where we're at. Because, like I said, you, you cannot avoid the monopoly of sending first-class mail with the post office, and you cannot avoid the monopoly of changing your address to receive postal mail. So there's there's no escape from this disclosure and that and being told that your information is going to go to labor unions potentially. And we we don't have any evidence per se of how they've used it so far, right? That's right. Uh, AFFT's two FOIA requests uh, so far have asked for that information, um, and we have not received any response from the government saying that they have done anything with the information so far. That seems to be a little bit fishy, and that's part of the lawsuit that uh, my law firm has filed on behalf of AFFT, saying uh, that that response doesn't seem exactly right. We don't think that you did an adequate search for relevant information, so go back and try again, please. You know, I guess one of the questions would be why why are labor unions in a special category for this? I mean, it could easily say Pfizer or Target or Walmart or something like that, you know, and I think more people would be freaking out if they knew, well, my information is going to Walmart, you know, the post office is giving it to somebody else. You know, it's, it's a private entity, so to speak. I think that's exactly right. And and that's what it's one of these things is not like the other things. When you're looking at the Privacy Act statement, why would you disclose this to a third party? Would you want your information disclosed to Walmart? I think a lot of people might object to that. Would you like your information disclosed to your neighbors? I don't know. Maybe not. And it's it's it seems like to our client that this is not a very good use of public time and of um, government resources and power. Right. And if it was, um, I'm just kind of thinking outside the box for a minute, but if it's something like a Pfizer or Walmart or whatever, and it's a private entity and they're, you know, I'm getting this information so I can solicit for new customers, they would probably pay for that. Why aren't unions paying for that? It's a very good question. Obviously, we don't know if post office has actually disclosed this information or if it will in the future. But a lot of the point of AFFT's FOIA requests and its subsequent litigation is to find out. And so that is indeed part of what they're hoping to find out. So the um, the story that came out, it hasn't been picked up by any major media outlets, has it? The Daily Mail picked it up last right. Friday, which I know our client was very excited about. And I'd commend your listeners to go and check it out. Because it's not just a a short story about what's going on. It's a little bit of a long story. And it it contains um, some some good information, not only about what's going on, but copies of documents so they can see, here is the complaint that the Fairness Center filed on behalf of AFFT. Here is the government's response to AFFT's FOIA request showing that they redacted everything. It's there in black and white. And I think being able to see that really makes a difference. Because we can talk in the abstract here, but if you see that they have redacted every single bit of information from these documents, you will you will understand, I think, viscerally that something is up. And we think, our client thinks, that the post office certainly has something to hide and is hiding something. Yeah, it's... Um, have Other than, have they responded at all to the lawsuit in terms of... Are they re- denying it? Or are they? They have responded. So uh, the post office is represented by counsel from the Department of Justice, 
and the Department of Justice on their behalf filed an answer to the complaint and then a motion for summary judgment saying that AFFT is not entitled to anything. Uh, we, uh, the Fairness Center, on behalf of AFFT, opposed that motion for summary judgment, and we moved for summary judgment ourselves, saying uh, there are no disputes of material fact. Court, please find in favor of our client. Please order the post office to unredact this information. Please conduct new searches and provide additional documents to us. And please change your regulations so that we have accountable folks deciding administrative appeals and not just rubber stamping a bad agency choice in the first place. Uh, that briefing took a while. Um, it was finished up uh, in November. Uh, in November, after the government finished its uh, summary judgment briefing, it actually filed a motion to dismiss part of the claims, the Administrative Procedure Act claims, about um, the post office's regulation that lets not the Postmaster General decide these administrative appeals. Uh, we, we briefed that up, and um, that's also pending before the court. That was finished in December. Uh, so I would say the the information, all of the briefing has been with the court for about six or seven weeks, and um, we will see what happens. David, let me ask you this. Is it possible, well, so we don't know that they've actually, the post office has actually given information to unions, Right. We, we don't know that for sure um, because post office won't answer the question and has denied that they have any records showing that they have given this information away. Uh, but from our client's perspective, um, they probably didn't search adequately for records, and so that's a problem. And uh, from our client's perspective, it just raises questions because why would you go to the trouble to include this labor union disclosure in this new Privacy Act statement if you didn't indeed intend to go through with that. So it's possible that it hasn't happened. Um, it's possible that it may happen in the future and folks are just waiting for some other reason to do it. We don't know. And it, it would be really helpful if the post office would come out and say, transparently, you know, we believe in transparent government and what we're going to do is explain to you what's up. Um, American people, here's what we've done with your information and here's why we include this, this new thing in our Privacy Act statement. But they won't do it. And from our client's perspective, that really raises a lot of questions. Yeah, it does. Um, it, it could be that they're just waiting until they have enough data in there to use, well, 2024, perhaps. We haven't heard any, you, I say we, you haven't heard it of any complaints of people getting unsolicited mail from unions, right? We have not heard that yet. Um, but if, if anybody has, we would certainly love to know. Right. Well, and your case hasn't gotten that much publicity yet either. Right. So, and has there been any, um, follow-up from the American media? The Daily Mail is, uh, United Kingdom, I think, right? There has not, as I understand it, been any follow-up from American media. We have certainly tried, um, and, and this was the outlet that wanted to cover, uh, the story, and we're very happy with how it turned out and very pleased that they were willing to, to run with it. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't been picked up by Fox or, you know, Bloomberg or any of the other main ones. It, it certainly is interesting, and I'd say if anybody is listening and wants to run with the story, we're more than happy to talk to them. Good. That'll be an open invite for any reporters who are listening. <laughs> um, so what else are you folks working on? 
So I mentioned at the beginning of this chat that we, um, since I have been at my firm, have opened the aperture to federal employees and representing them in the context of issues that arise in their workplace, where we have unions and agencies involved and the the legal framework and structure that is involved um, there. So one thing I would love to talk about, (laughs) it's very interesting, uh, most of these cases need to be litigated in the first instance before the Federal Labor Relations Authority. That's Mm. an obscure little independent board in the federal government. has, at a full complement, three people on it uh, who were appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. It's got a general counsel, and it decides most issues within the context of this federal employee unionization. It's kind of like OPM or the Office of Special Counsel. we submitted our, our first um, claim on behalf of a federal employee early in 2022 to a, kind of a subset of the FLRA called the Foreign Service Labor Relations Board. It deals with claims in this space um, from essentially foreign service officers and the unionization of foreign service officers and is, is kind of part of the FLRA but not part of the FLRA. We, we came to the folks and said, we, we want to file a, a complaint on behalf of our client. He's experienced a, a real problem. Can you point to us any procedures that we should follow? Can you point us to any forms that we should use to file a case? And we were told no one has filed a case in this in this board on, the, on these issues since, in fact, the, the 1980s. And we don't, <laughs> we don't have a form. Um, so w- would you do us a favor and, and make up a form? that would um, be, as, be part of your client's charges. And we said, sure, we'll do that. So we, we in fact, made the form for the FSLRB on behalf of our clients and made the charges there. Uh, I think that is a good vignette to show you that there's almost n- no one doing representation in this space on behalf of individuals. Uh, now, now, what type of case would this be? Was would th- This is a foreign service officer who is represented by a union or that's right because um there is a union that um has been certified relative to his employment he's not a union member but he is a member of the collective bargaining unit that the union represents and so even though he's not a member what that means legally is that the union gets to speak on his behalf to management and he isn't allowed to speak to management his, his voice is subordinated to this union, which is the exclusive representative of this bargaining unit. Hmm. And this case uh, alleged that um, the, the State Department, in passing its COVID-19 vaccine mandate, uh, did not negotiate with the relevant union over it before it implemented it. And the union, in turn, didn't negotiate with the State Department about it. When you have an exclusive representative involved, um, as here, they have a duty to represent everybody in the bargaining unit. And what that means is, among other things, if there's a change to working conditions, those must be bargained about. And if there is no bargaining over a change to working conditions, as here, then that is an unfair labor practice on the on the part of the agency and also on the part of the union. So... Um, unless the union waived its right to bargain? It's it's an interesting question. We don't think that they were allowed to waive that right when it comes to something so important as a vaccine mandate and where the the agency was threatening people with discipline and termination. 
So this is almost a duty of fair representation case for that those of us that are more familiar with the private sector be aware of, right? I would say it's very, very similar. Um, and that, you know, basically our position is if there is an exclusive rep and you're not allowed to negotiate on behalf of yourself, the union needs to fairly represent you through that process. And that means that they need to negotiate about changes to working conditions. The changes to working conditions, particularly of that magnitude, cannot be laterally imposed in the federal space. Now, would that be different under the, um, was it the FLRA or is it Fair, uh, Federal Labor Relations Act? Is that the? That is under the, the Federal um, Labor Relations Authority's jurisdiction generally. And the, the labor management statute contains that requirement. Um, that's in um, Title V of the United States Code, and it's part of the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. Okay. So that's an interesting one because now you've got um, Janice that's, I guess that would be somewhat related in that the individual doesn't have to be a union member but is still stuck under, I hate this term, but the monopoly bargaining, so to speak. That and, isn't the structure. There, there's no, if you were in a bargaining unit, there's no way to opt out. Um, that, that is how it is. And that, as we understand it, uh, affects and um, it is the way that most federal employees are, are dealt with. Um, over half of the 2.1 million federal employees that exist are within this structure. Interesting. So the, um, the, I'm going to screw this up. F L F yeah, it's FLRA or FLRHA is so whatever the, <laughs> the entity is that you described, which is the three person panel. Yes. And then below that, you've got this other little board, right? Right. Or authority. Now those are political positions, right? Those are political positions, and when you have um, an administration in place of whatever party, in general, they get to pick two of the three. Um, interestingly enough, right now, uh, there is a vacancy, and so you have one board member who is a Republican and one who is a Democrat. Oh, that's interesting. So are they issuing any decisions or only they ones they can agree on? They have to agree, exactly. Yeah. If they're at an impasse, there's nowhere to go, and so at expect that if that comes up, the case is just going to wait for the third board member to arrive whenever he or she does. Now, where is yours right now? Is it still awaiting a decision? It's been filed, right? The one that I mentioned initially about where we made the form up uh, is is still waiting for a decision. FLRA, FSLRB, in fact, has uh, stayed uh, the case. And that is pending the outcome of the litigation in the Fifth Circuit around the vaccine mandate the vaccine mandates at, at large across the government. Uh, the the folks there are waiting on a decision from an en banc panel of the Fifth Circuit, so the whole court, to decide whether, uh, um, number one, they have essentially the ability to challenge this in court, and two, if the government had the authority to issue mandates of this sort. Interesting. Uh, you know, sometimes when I hear about all these little agencies and stuff, I, just, I wish I had stayed awake more and, you know, sophomore, <laughs> whatever class that was in high school. But you, you, there are so many little agencies and little boards and 
you know, different things that people do in, inside the government. It really is a labyrinth. And if you're not in that space all the time, it's very hard to understand what's going on. Right. Um, there's something I saw about the ICE agents. That Are you folks doing something with ICE agents? We are indeed. We represent an ICE agent, a Homeland Security officer out of Boise, Idaho, who had an issue related to his union. Um, the backstory is that uh, there was a local union within ICE that represented its non-professional employees, including our client. Uh, that's called ICE Council. Um, ICE Council was related to uh, a large umbrella union that represents a lot of people across the federal government called AFGE. ICE Council was not thrilled with AFG's representation of these non-professional employees within ICE. And they filed a complaint in the summer of last year with the Department of Labor, alleging, among other things, that AFGE was spending ICE, ICE's money that it had obtained from the members within ICE on things like strippers, prostitutes, jewelry, Super Bowl mm. tickets, paying hush money to hide scandals, and alleging that these AFG officials had engaged in sexual misconduct and racial discrimination towards employees. Pretty explosive. The, the officers of ICE Council also alleged that AFG um, had far-left positions and was anti-law enforcement, so it was at odds with the interests of its uh, core members that it was supposed to represent. Let me, let me pause you for a second. So let's, um, let's kind of define what the ICE Council, who their members would be. It would be your ICE agents, your Border uh, Patrol agents? Border Patrol agents are in CBP, so I would say okay. no in that case. These are folks um, largely with an ERO in, in ICE that are engaged in, for example, um, deportation issues for folks that are inside the country already. Okay. And they're distinct from, like, for example, managers that were and are represented separately as part of the professionals unit. And they're not TSA. That's different. That's right. TSA is separate. Okay. All right. Sorry. No, not at all. (laughs) So the ICE Council employees alleged that the AFG, which is the American Federation of Government Employees leaders, were engaging in prostitution. Just repeat that. Prostitution, strip joints, um, and other types of... Jewelry, Super Bowl tickets, all the things that you can imagine and that are not good uses of... Uh, you know, employees' funds, which are supposed to be intended for their representation relative to working conditions. Uh, so a, a real problem, if true. Um, AFG, Slightly. Just a slight problem. <laughs> uh, AFG decided to respond to this by disclaiming its interest in the ICE um, non-professional bargaining unit. So it, it ran off to FLRA and said, mm, we don't want to represent these folks anymore. And FLA said, sure, you're out. Wait a minute. So you get caught spending money on hookers and and strippers and Super Bowl tickets, and rather than addressing that issue, they're just going to dump the members who are paying for it? That's exactly what happened. (laughs) And FLRA said, fine. And I said, sure. And so not much longer after this happened, after this complaint was filed, if I remember correctly, it might have been 21 days, pretty quick as government goes. Um, AFG is no longer representing 
uh, ICE non-professional employees. And that means that ICE Council also um, is essentially decertified and, and not a union relative to these folks. So ICE's position, and I think it was correct, is that since this decertification happened, these non-professional employees don't have a union anymore. And so we, management, get to unilaterally set terms and conditions of employment, which they, in fact, did. Um, the collective bargaining agreement is null and void, and so everything is unilateral at this point. What's very interesting is that two weeks after this happened, ICE decided to deduct union dues from the members, the former members of AFG and ICE Council for the benefit of AFG. And so our client took a look at his pay stub and said, what? Why in the world would you do this? Because there, there is no union anymore. So not only should you have not taken this money, but like, did you hand it off to this not union anymore? So we filed charges on his behalf with FLRA and said, hmm, this is interesting because under the law, um, this is the Civil Service Reform Act in Title V we were talking about earlier. Under the law, there is either an allotment for a union uh, that is appropriate to be taken from folks' paychecks, or there isn't. And one of the times where it's there isn't, where there's no allotment, is when the union is no more, when it has been decertified. And that makes perfect sense. Because why would you charge union dues to a union to something that doesn't represent you? And, and we, we think that that's outrageous. We think that it probably um, comes to about $80,000, that were taken from these Homeland Security agents' paychecks for the benefit of this union that decided to abandon them. And so we've asked FLRA to look into this and to find that somebody somewhere engaged in unfair labor practices, and we want the money back. How, how long ago did this happen, and how long were they – did they finally stop taking the union dues? Yes. Um, the last time it happened was in August. And then ICE didn't stop the next pay period thereafter. So it's one pay period that's at issue. Uh, We thought charges in, I think, October. And we're waiting uh, for some action from FLRA in response to those. I think it's going to be forthcoming in the next month or so. How many employees was that ICE Council representing? Our understanding is about 7,500. That's pretty big. Yeah. How many of them were union members and were having dues deducted prior to AFG running off? If we assume conservatively it was half, then we arrive at probably about $80,000. If it was 75% or 90% who were paying dues, the number goes up from there. Right. So this might have been just a payroll glitch. And I guess the other question would be, who does the money come back from? Was that AFG needs yeah. to pay it back, right? Presuming that ICE actually handed it off to them and it's not sitting somewhere. And we, we have to unscrew this as part of the investigative process with FLRA. The question is, who, who has it and who owes it back, really, at this point? Right. And where does this sit in terms of process? We have filed the charges and we have provided information to FLRA about entirely who he thinks at issue, who are the witnesses, what are the documents that are relevant. And um, we understand the investigator who's a lawyer is going to be in touch with us in February to have a conversation about it and to hopefully come to a path forward. So the, um, 
so this has been sitting for a while, but you're li- you're dealing with a board that is one to one in terms of political party, right? And so if one says nope, they should be able to keep the money, and the other says no, they shouldn't, then you're going to be stuck in limbo for forever, potentially. It, maybe potentially. Um, what what happens with FLRA is that career officials deal with things in the first instance. And so we're talking to an attorney, a line attorney, who is within FLRA about the issue and the the actually charging decision whether FLRA wants to move forward or not um, really starts with what's called a regional director who is a career employee. And that decision is ultimately appealable to the general counsel of FLRA. This is the, the decision whether to charge. And... The, there is no general counsel right now, so there's an acting career official that will make that choice, and there that's actually not appealable anywhere. And so if if the regional director declines it and the acting general counsel declines it, then there is nowhere to go, and the board itself would actually not get to make a decision. So this is um, it's set up similarly to the National Labor Relations Board, it sounds like. three Three members as opposed to five, though. That's exactly right. So if, for example, there was a charge and this went to a hearing before a judge, that judge's final decision could be appealed to the authority, to the board itself, to make a decision. And then up to a court of appeals from there if need be. But the initial decision to charge happens below the board itself. Uh, And we hope that the folks there do the right thing and say that this is outrageous. Um, this, This money was taken from folks. Without their consent, it was forcibly taken from their pay, and it was given to a union that disclaimed any interest that said, we want nothing to do with you. We think that's completely wrong. Our client think that's, thinks that's completely wrong, and that's why we filed these charges. That's, you know, I've seen, I saw a couple stories about it, but I really didn't dig into, like, the whole hookers and strippers and football tickets and all that. That's Did where the, it all was, it, was the AFG president involved in this? I believe that is uh, part of the allegations. And the discrimination part, um, was there sexual harassment as well? I, I'm trying to recall. It's, uh, something's in the back of my mind I'm thinking. Um, and I don't know, did the individual retire? I don't recall the specifics of that. I know that sexual misconduct of some sort was alleged. misconduct. Okay. Yeah. I just, I, I vaguely remember it. We've, I mentioned this sometimes that, you know, we've got over 13,000 links we put up on laborunionnews.com in the last year. So they, the stories go through my brain really fast. How <laughs> I bet. But so a couple questions other than what else are you working on? Um, you mentioned at the outset that you folks were primarily representing state employees, then broadened into federal employees, but your main state operations were Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and I want to say New York, was it? That's right. Are you are you folks, you're in Pennsylvania, I think, your offices are? Our main office is in Pennsylvania. I sit in Washington, D.C. Okay. So at the state level... The, those that you're, uh, those clients that you represent, are those like teachers or firefighters, folks like that? Absolutely right. Uh, I, for example, have a series of teachers or folks that work for schools that I represent in New York in federal court, 
alleging violations of their constitutional rights around unionization. Janus types uh, cases? Janus type cases, especially where folks tried to resign from the union in addition to stopping dues from being deducted from their pay forcibly and being told that, in fact, they couldn't resign and, in fact, they couldn't stop the money from being taken until a window period, usually the next year and at a very inconvenient time that no one knows about and that it's quite opaque. Right. Um, is that is it like the week-long or month-long window towards the anniversary date of their collective bargaining agreement? That is one way to do it. Often, So that that's probably the, the most pernicious way to do it because then you, the individual employee, need to track exactly when you became a member. And typically the, the period is, is a week or 10 days before your anniversary date. And if you didn't, if you were out sick or if you're a teacher and it's the summer, which it often is, then you're out of luck for a whole nother year and you're going to be charged six or 800 bucks. Um, another way to do it is to say, well, during the month of June, that's when you need to resign and, you know, um, deauthorize due seduction. Our position is, of course, that you can resign union membership at any time. And that is a right that is guaranteed you by the First Amendment. You have the right to associate with whom you want and you have the right to disassociate from whom you want at any time. And we don't think that it is appropriate for unions and state agencies or federal agencies to agree that, for example, if you tried to stop due seduction for the benefit of someone that you tried to resign from in September, that you've got to wait till the next September, which is often what happens. So this may be an unfair question. Um, are you familiar with NLRA provisions on, like, dues deduction and canceling membership and right-to-work states? I am much less familiar with that since I've been so focused on the civil rights stuff uh, okay. under Fed Court and then for federal employees. I, I asked that because my recollection um, when I was in the union, and I'm going back 35 years, so my re- recollection may be hazy, but we were in a right-to-work state, and if a member wanted to drop membership, they had to do it on the anniversary month of, and it was in June, uh, of the collective bargaining agreement. Like they could opt out once a year, so to speak. But other than that, if they didn't know the dates, which a lot of them didn't, you know, they're going to get stuck in the yeah. union. It, it happens often. And, and we, um, our clients just disagree with it and think that it is in violation of the Supreme court's opinion in Janice, which has a, a lot of good language about how, you know, we can't force people to, associate with, to subsidize, to support um, political speech with which they disagree. And that's exactly what these kind of provisions do. They're designed on purpose to hold people into membership often and to use deductions that they disagree with. Um, And I can tell you about a Fed case that raises that issue if you'd like. Sure. Uh, We represent a customs officer. Uh, He lives in Detroit, Michigan, and works the border between the United States and Canada. Uh, Related to CBP's uh, vaccine mandate, he became disillusioned uh, with his union, NTEU, and said, I want to resign from this union and I want to stop dues deductions. He did that in September of 2021. He was told, you know, as a matter of fact, you you can't do that. Number one, um, the form that you use to to, to do this needs to be signed by a union official. 
even though it doesn't contain a box that says a union official signature is required. And that union official is going to have a conversation with you before they're going to sign it. So <laughs> a conversation, a little bit coercive, I would say, and in violation of his First Amendment rights, a conversation he didn't want to have. Before, the union would then forward the form to the agency, CBP, to process his, his um, dues deduction deauthorization. So he was held, um, essentially, as we understand it, not only as a union member, but also a dues-paying member from September of 2021 until September of 2022 by operation of what these folks did and what they agreed to in their CBA. But it gets worse. Because he tried to resign from the union, the union decided that he was a member not in good standing. Mm -hmm. So he asked to resign. They say, no, you're a member not in good standing, but you still owe us dues. The collective bargaining agreement says that if the union considers uh, a person, a, a member, not in good standing, then they're actually supposed to reach out to the agency and say, agency, stop collecting dues at this point because this person's not in good standing. And this this union didn't do that as far as we know. And dues kept being deducted for a year in violation of our client's will, his conscience, his constitutional rights. So... Um... As not a member of in good standing, but he was paying full membership dues. Correct. So he was receiving no benefits of union membership, essentially excommunicated from the union, receiving no communications, none of the benefits, which at, at CBP can be pretty substantial to include unions running um, like lotteries for when people are allowed to get on schedules for work and when they can have vacation. And so it seems pretty clear that our client got a worse deal relative to his his schedule this year because he wasn't receiving union communications and yet paying them full dues the entire time. Is he still paying full dues? No, CBP finally stopped. Oh, you broke up for a second. CBP finally stopped that consistent with the CBA in a way. So they did stop it in September of 2022 but in the meantime, the union never told CBP, as far as we know, that um, he's a member not in good standing and due should have been stopped that entire time. Okay. Now, again, you've still got the fair representation issue, right? So if he's being discriminated against because he's, and I, I use that from the union perspective, um, because he's not a member in good standing, doesn't he have a claim there? I think that he does, uh, and in fact, um, if, if they are treating non-members worse than, than members in that sort of context, then absolutely. So this also may be an unfair question. Um, does he have rights under the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act or Landrum-Griffin, or is that only for private sector workers? I'm trying to recall. My understanding is that there are rights under under that and that these um, unions, even though they're federal public sector, need to make similar disclosures. So from within that law is the Bill of Rights for Members, I believe, which is the, I want to say Section 301, but I'm not, I'm not positive. Um, but it essentially allows members to um, speak out against the union, stuff like that, without being penalized. I, again, I don't know if this applies to him or not, but 
I, I don't know either. And it's certainly something to think about. Yeah. Hmm. It's, you know, I, I get criticized for being quote anti-union sometimes, but it's this sort of stuff that gives unions bad reputations. Cause that's a, that's an individual who, wherever he goes, if he goes on to a, another career is probably never going to want anything to do with the union again. We see that often because folks get treated very badly and they say, well, I'm, I'm giving this up for good, um, uh, for, for better or worse. Um, yeah. Well, and then, you know, the, um, the fact that he's paying full dues and is not a member in good standing, I would, I would think um, he'd have some, some sort of recourse with that. You would think we in fact have another client who was um, expelled from the union, not just a member in bad standing, but expelled and his dues continue to this day. Really? We have filed charges about that too. It, you know, it's unfortunate. And I, when I go to explain, you know, unions under the law and this is private sector unions don't have to represent workers to their liking. And a lot of times people don't understand that because they represent the, the collective, not necessarily the individual. And, you know, when you see workers who get in trouble, fall in, you know, disgrace with the upper echelons in the union and they're treated like crap, they really don't have any resource recourse to go or any resources to, you know, fight for. So it's, you know, why you guys are out there and there's other on the private sector side, national right to work foundation, stuff like that. Although they don't always get into this sort of stuff, but. It definitely leaves people between a rock and a hard place in, in many situations. If they speak out, they're often treated badly and denied good representation and it is one thing that we're looking out for in that space because people should be allowed to speak their mind and they should be allowed to make choices about who to associate with and who to support. And if you have a, a union, for example, engaged in substantially political advocacy that is against the beliefs of, for example, the person that I mentioned earlier, um, their religious beliefs, it, it's really a problem because that person can't be a member of that organization. It would violate his religious beliefs. Ah, okay. So that's, that's a little bit even further. Um, yeah, there are certain religions that prohibit the belonging of other organizations and a few, not a lot, but it's, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I should kind of take back what I said, because there are, you know, if you are a union member, you get, um, misrepresented or, the union refuses to represent you. You could go, in, at least in the private sector, to the National Labor Relations Board, file a charge, CB charge. The problem with that, um, from the union's perspective, you got to be pretty bad at your job to have a charge filed that's blatantly, you know, that way. Because I, I just say, as a union rep, there's ways to write grievances and drop them if if they go up the chain, so to speak, that you could at least show that you represent the worker. Right. There's substantial power imbalance when it comes to this. You've got large unions with a lot of money and a lot of people working for them. You have agencies in the same situation, and then you have individuals caught in the balance. Uh, My law firm helps to represent those individuals, um, trying to equalize this to some degree as best we can. Um, but left to their own devices, I think it is very difficult for individuals to assert their rights in this space. Yeah. Public and private sector. Sounds like public may actually be harder. 
in the it will be it's quite byzantine yeah Ooh, i like that term i haven't heard that in a while well david i appreciate you coming on um you want to let the folks know where they can reach out to you or the fairness center yes absolutely peter thanks so much for having me on you can find more information about us at fairnesscenter.org, F-A-I-R-N-E-S-S-C-E-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G. We would be happy to hear from you. Um, please do reach out if you have any questions or issues. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you coming on Labor Relations Radio. Thank you. Take care, Peter. Thanks. You too. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was David Dory from the Fairness Center representing the Americans for Fair Treatment in their FOIA lawsuit to try to figure out why the U.S. Postal Service may be giving your information as well as millions of other Americans to labor unions. And I would encourage you to, after you listen to this episode or maybe uh, during, go to the post office's website, try to order some stamps, go to checkout, even as a guest, go down to the bottom and see the language for yourself. And then maybe ask your congressperson why that's happening. Why is your information potentially being given to unions? In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Contact us through Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening and have a great day. been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.